Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about findability with a special guest, J.P. Sherman, the manager of search and findability at Red Hat. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, reliability, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. The industry is moving fast. Make the right moves with the experience of 42lines.net. Welcome, JP. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. What is findability? Uh, Findability is really the science and practice of how people find information. And search is a subset of findability. Um, Findability includes things like UI, UX. Uh, It includes things like uh, um, content clustering, uh, things like information sent trails. It really touches the the technical side of information architecture. It touches the code level side of things like structured data. And it touches the, the real creative side of how do you create information that essentially gives a perception of value to a person who has an unstated intent. Okay, so people know vaguely about search and search engine optimization, and this is not that, right? I would say it's a, it's a, it's a part of it, but SEO from a, from a real kind of pragmatic perspective is about the, the organization of information and content in order to rank. Um, but I think that, so it's, it's a tactic. I would say, I would call it a tactic to help people find information, but it's, it's much, SEO is much smaller than the whole field of findability. So is this something like, I, and I have no idea where, where we're going here, but <laughs> recently I was working with a coworker on something who God love him. Well, it's in the wiki. Yeah. Can I find it in the wiki? And, you know, I'm searching for code chunks or search terms that will lead me to the right place to find the documentation for the thing I'm trying to use in the first place. And it's just, it's one of those things that it's gotten to the point now, if it's in the wiki is a curse term. <laughs> Dude, you are so speaking my language that like, that is, that is that kind of, that kind of conversation is about 30% of why I am is, is responsible 30% of my profanity kind of thing. Um, so one of the things one of the things about that is is that the, the the base I'd say that the most popular way to find information online is through a search engine either through something like Google or Bing or through some sort of site search. Um, so generally, wikis are packaged with a very a fairly simple search platform, and they generally look for like essentially text search, which is fine. But if you don't know what the thing is called exactly, you get a lot of a, a lot of false positives. And the way that the information is retrieved is may not be the best way for to meet those needs. Uh, a lot of these text searches, they look at term frequency. Essentially, it's uh, Term frequency is like how many times is, is is the term 
repeated or exist in that document, either on the page or on the metadata or something like that. And that is probably the simplest way to search, but it is probably the one the most, um, the easiest to manipulate. And two, it's not always, it's, it's, it's rarely, rarely accurate. Um, for example, we at, so a long time ago, I was using the, the Google search appliance, which I believe that was the first thing that Google did to make money. And then Google became an advertising company. The Google search appliance was like this box that we put on our servers and we used to power search. And to be perfectly honest, once the revenue from the Google search appliance became a rounding error in terms of revenue from their advertising business, there have been no updates to the Google search appliance since like 2003, maybe 2005. Yeah, that hurts. It, it, and it's so counterintuitive because Google is search. It's synonymous with search. Of course, the Google search appliance is just like google.com. No, it's, it's, it's bad. <laughs> and which, in fairness, they have since retired it. So it is no longer a thing that Google does. But in a, in a body of content of over half a million pieces of, of content, I would actually get a click-through rate of, around, of less than 10% using the Google search appliance. So when I look at how is my search working, the first person, the first place I look at is click-through rate. Are people finding something that they think that they're, um, that they click on? Yes. To be clear, that's just the, you hit search results and you click on a link. Yes. It, there's, we're, we're still steps away from, did they find what they were even looking for? And so beyond that, just, just using the pure Google search appliance, we're getting around, nine to 11% click-through rates, which was just horrible. So fortunately, I actually went to a different position at a different company. This is at Red Hat. We're using Solar. And Solar has a lot of you know levers and knobs that you can manipulate to make your search better. Um, so I was, I was actually really, really happy to, to move to the Solar platform. And to kind of go into a little more of a rabbit hole, there's a huge difference between um, e-commerce search and knowledge search. And then there's even a, a greater definition between knowledge search and then there's support search and discovery search. And so you start breaking down all these all these little intention buckets of how does the, um, what is the person looking for? And then how do I match that unsaid intent to the content that we have? So it gets, it gets really fun, really technical and, um, I can literally ramble for days about it. So that last bit about intent, that's kind of the, I'm trying to figure out what the systemd options are for a unit file versus I'm trying to install a product versus I'm looking for a security vulnerability in something that happened recently, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, those are some of the, and that those are really, really good, good examples of some, some of the uh, machine learning uh, experimentation that we're doing at Red Hat right now. So I'm not one of those people who believe that machine learning is some sort of panacea, even though if you look at marketers, th they will love, they will love to tell you that machine learning is this wonderful thing and it, it's a lot of work. So the way that we break down search is by looking at the common tasks of your universe of content. 
So at Red Hat, I work on the, the, the Red Hat customer portal, not redhat.com. So I'm very deeply involved in support and delivery. I'm uh, very, very uh, deeply involved in our frontline professionals, the people that you call, that give, that help you out with your problems. And so I manage the, the, the content, the, the solution content that they create. I manage the documentation products that go along with installations and migrations and administrations, things like that. So looking at, let's say, 10,000 keywords, um, I start looking at, I, I used a kind of a keyword parser and ran it through like a, some natural language processing and I started looking at synonyms. So when I look at installation, for example, I'm looking at setup, install, um, update, upgrade. So all of these different types of words that could potentially be essentially uh, signals for the intent to install. When I looked at troubleshooting, I looked at things like hangs, doesn't, crashes, and so that was a much bigger universe of words that could potentially signal a troubleshooting intent. So then, um, taking that universe, we applied it to a single product, uh, our product OpenShift, which gave me a smaller universe of keywords to essentially work with. And the really cool thing about the machine learning side is that we used, um, oh, what was that? What was the, uh, I'm blanking on the name. It was uh, Learn to Rank. I don't know that uh, one. Okay, so uh, Learn to Rank or LTR is a solar plugin that can that essentially creates a. It's used in machine learning to essentially figure out, um, essentially build machine learning relevancy models for the content that you have. So the the experiment that we did was, we took my my keyword universe of intention signals, and put that into Learn to Rank, and then it did its own analysis given I think something like 15,000 queries we fed it into learn to rank and then it came up with here are the queries that we think are potentially have the unstated intent of troubleshooting and then my job because like half of machine learning is really like there there's going to be some human curation there has to be so I went through and I said, yes, this is definitely troubleshooting. Yes, this is troubleshooting. Maybe this is troubleshooting. This is more something else. And then I pared down that list of positive results. And then I, I listed the, the negative results. And so we fed it back through the machine learning program. And it took those positive results and refined them. It took the negative results and refined those. And so after about, I'd say we've been doing this for about a good eight months, the I'm getting I'm getting a um, so learn to rank is estimating that it's about a 98% accuracy um, in terms of I think in LTR says I think that this is a 98% match for the intent to troubleshoot and then when I do my human review um, I'm finding that we're getting around a 97% accuracy that's not terrible though that's yeah. actually strong no yeah and it's like and the delta, it's like I, we measure our machine learning success by the delta between what it says it is and what it actually is. So there's a lot of human curation that goes into this, these kind of machine learning programs. And the result of this is that I take, so then I take, I take that universe 
and then I apply it to uh, current queries. And then I kind of block those out and look at my click-through rate from those queries. So in the past, if somebody was doing a troubleshooting query intent, I don't want to give around, I don't want to give exact numbers, but like we're in the 50s to 60% accuracy. And with the machine learning on top of it, we're looking at around like the 70s, like a seven in the 70s of accuracy and, and click-through rates, things like that. Which is kind of a side note that when it comes to search results, when it comes to search and click-through rates, if you have less than a 70% um, click-through rate, people think that you are horrible, you don't do your job, and you should probably die in a fire. Well, it's but, kind of like the old thing about if a web page <laughs> takes more than, what, five seconds to load, people just leave? Yeah. And it's surprisingly low in terms of how people, how people just give up, and they're, okay, I'm done. This doesn't right. work. Right. And then, like, for some reason, like, right above 72%, they think that you are a magical search unicorn <laughs> and that you have like you probably delve in like the dark magics and literally like you can sell, tell from i can tell how how well i'm doing by the number of emails that i get saying i don't understand what you do i can't find anything why do you even still work here transitioning to my customer was looking for a problem and they found it on the first page thank you and it's it's nice to get feedback but that's always laughing. <laughs> yeah like I, I really do like the feedback because like when it comes to search like i know that my baby is ugly and it's okay that you tell me that my baby is ugly but when you tell me that like tell me why tell me what you were doing so that way i can understand the context of what the situation was in which you recall my baby ugly that is the common point i think we all share yeah <laughs> I understand it's broken. Tell me what you were doing. <laughs> yes. Can, can you at least give me the URL of the thing you were looking at that was broken and not just say it wasn't working, please? Yes. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, and that's to bring it back to the conversation about findability. So the search results are just a part of the findability. And I'm going to bring it to like a, the conversation of uh, user interface and user experience, because this is where you start getting multiple pathways into finding information. So, for example, if I if if my query is just system D, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. Like, what do you want to know? It's like my child walking walking into the room and saying, "Water. What do you want? Some? Like, tell me more. I need a verb, please." You're probably right. <laughs> Honestly, I think water's certainly better for you than. <laughs> so one of the things that we did was we looked at the we looked at the natural results. We're like, okay, let's build a knowledge graph. And by knowledge graph, like if you search Google for Morgan Freeman, you know the box on the right hand side that says Morgan. He was born on this day. He the location where he's born in the movies. The he Wikipedia entry. Yes. But it's, it's more than just Wikipedia. It also pulls in some like modern news clippings and other yeah, amalgamations. Like if you want current. to go down this rabbit hole, I can tell right. you something really the, cool the Google about one it. Google does, right? Um, so Google's knowledge graph builds algorithms based on entity recognition. So if the entity is a, a, 
a human actor versus a technology company brand, it will start looking for what are the key attributes of this particular ent entity. And then rather than somebody in a dark room at Google, you know, typing out these or like putting in the URL to Wikipedia, it says, we know that this is a human. So humans have birthdays and death days. We know that they are associated with locations. And so their, their knowledge graph actually builds an algorithm based on the type of entity it recognizes and then searches Google to find consensus on what the date should be. So if Morgan, if, if out of a hundred uh, entries, all 99 agree that Morgan Freeman was born on a particular date, but one of them says a different date, it's going to go with consensus. And so that's kind of how Google's uh, knowledge graph really kind of builds itself. So our knowledge graph. It really blows my mind how much data Google has and organizes and makes available for display yeah. at the speeds they work at. It, it's, I don't yes. always agree with what they're doing or how they approach problems or politics, but they have some really amazing tech that they have built. The fact they can build those indexes and iterate through them that quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It's not what they do. It's the speed they do it. It's just mind boggling. And one of the things, one of the, um, I had a friend of mine who used to work at Bing. They would like one of their key performance indicators was um, power usage and environmental impacts. What is, what is the carbon footprint of a data center or of all of their data centers because they're running so fast and they're running so much processing, so much information, they, they didn't always look at the number of seconds or the milliseconds in which information was returned. One of their key um, ways of optimizing their speed was how much less energy are we actually using? And I thought that was a really fascinating way to look at it since I don't work at a search engine, but like there's a real monetary cost to, we are running faster, we are running cleaner and we are saving money on this energy because we are able to optimize our code to find information faster. And people are there's less an time. urban legend that says every time you run a Google search, it's like the energy of boiling a pot of water on the stove. Really? I haven't heard that. That's cool. If that's true, yeah, it's that's kind of scary. scary. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like, JP, there's a lot of manual work that goes into the kind of the building and the training and the understanding of the the intents. But how much work goes into, I don't know, tagging your content? And, and how much work do, does the input side of it need to make the content more discoverable? I know that just having like a man page or just having a, a news article or something isn't giving the engine and isn't giving you as the findability manager the right kind of tools to do things. What, what, what's the next step in that, that path? So I think, I think that uh, what I'm trying to do is recognize several years ago that Google really doesn't want to be a search engine. It wants to be an answer engine. And to answer questions, you need to understand intention, you need to understand entities, and you need to understand the application of those entities. 
Um, one of the examples that I use is um, if you search Google, if you search Google for the movie that makes fun of Star Wars, the first result is Spaceballs. Well, and that seems logical. Right. But how do you suss that out out of the Okay, author? here's how. Um, the movie, you have an entity type that makes fun of, when you parse that out, movies can be grouped into par- as a parody. And parodies are like the thing, but not the thing. So the thing in question is Star Wars. So they know that it's not Star Wars. They know that it is a movie, but it is like Star Wars. And so once you remove Star Wars as a keyword from the list, you get Spaceballs. So it's kind of an intelligent parsing of the phrase to understand the intent and as well as entity and entity type recognition. So to pull that into what I'm doing is I really don't care about keywords. I, I look at keywords as the vehicles through which intent is expressed. So the words themselves don't matter a lot to me. It's, it's like in 2003, we would have arguments as I worked in an SEO agency. We were like, okay, the word pen is searched 500 times a month. The word pens, the plural, is searched 10,000 times a month. So we are going to optimize for the word pens. That's where we would get garbage content. Like if you're looking for pens, we have pens. Look no further for pens because we are your best source for pens. Just trying to hit the the keyword counter enough times that you... Right. Um, so now I'm trying to take it as, um, as entity building. So I look at a product, let's say, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. This product is a thing. Entities have attributes. So it has it has a kernel. It has all of these other things that need to be recognized. So I use essentially structured data to break down an entity to its to its attributes. And now I have another product that may share a particular attribute or component. So now because I've ta- now because I've built the structured markup that recognizes a pro- two products, the entities and some of the components, it can re- it essentially has a horizontal recognition layer where it says these two products have this particular co- uh, component in, prob- in common. So it creates a relationship. And so knowledge graphs are based off of entities that have attributes that are connected through structured markup and structured data. And so I do. So I try to do that. That leads me to ask, who writes the structured markup? Yeah, where does that come from? That's where I was going to go. <laughs> um, from the from the enterprise from the enterprise level, let's let's take this in two parts. Uh, from the enterprise level, um, a lot of the data that we have comes from like like Salesforce, um, some of our internal. Um, product product teams and even like from our developer teams like we've we've actually asked them to like create essentially canonical lists of attributes like file size components used things like that and so it's about building those connectors because 
honestly, like if my job were to build structured data all day, I would go nuts. Yeah, not a fun. No, no. Like I wouldn't even ask an intern to do that kind of work. Um, so it's about recognizing where is this information held, building a connector, and then writing a structured data template where that information gets fed in and then it gets transformed from essentially a, a we're using a graph database. Um, it gets transformed from the graph database into a into uh, structured markup using um, schema.org. Uh, schema.org, I, I, I'm one of the contributors on schema.org and it is a, is a place where all of the major search engines has said schema.org is a useful and valuable way to organize information. So then we transform that data, convert it into a schema.org format, and then we put it on the page. And then Google looks at the schema, our own site search looks at the schema, and we can start building those relationships and entities and getting better. Um, and like, I haven't even said the word results yet. Um, getting better understanding of what a product is, what it does, and its relationship to other things. So I was really hoping when we started this conversation that you were going to be able to tell me that when I asked this next question that there was a possibility of it, and it sounds like there really isn't. Um, I've always been flummoxed by the Confluence search feature in the wiki. It's always been terrible. I've never been able to use it to find anything usable. And I have some friends who can use Confluence and Jira and actually extract meaningful data. I can't. I just, I can't. And you guys have done a lot of the legwork, it sounds like, to build the relationships and build the models and build the understanding of what is needed. And I would love for you to release a wiki engine that actually had usable search or a usable search plugin <laughs> for a wiki engine because, but it sounds like it's a lot more work than just having an engine. Um, so, um, Based on some based on some research that I didn't do, but and it's about I think it's about at this point seven years old. So I'm gonna say this, but like just take it with a grain of salt. Um, because, of course. So one, not a lot of research is actually being done on site search. So I'm one of the few people, like there are very few people who are looking at site search as a as a business solution. Um, two, and part of that part of the research that was done a while ago showed that between 12 and 14% of organizations actually focus on site search for their associates or site search as a consumable piece of the product that they produce. So it totally doesn't surprise me that Confluence would just like, you can search, it's not great, but you can technically do it. And, they're, they're, and it becomes very counterintuitive because Google has essentially taught us to be like, hey, Google, uh, what's that movie that makes fun of Star Wars again? And then that behavior becomes a learned behavior and you get upset that other search engines, other search applications can't do something similar. Yeah, the, the number of duplicate Jira tickets I've opened or the number of duplicate Confluence pages I've started working on and then somebody linked me to the correct one is just staggeringly high. Yeah, As a consultant and flipping back and forth between clients, everybody uses the Alassian tool suite nowadays. Mm -hmm. And of course, you ask a question, oh, it's in the wiki. 
I can't find crap in that wiki. <laughs> and it, it doesn't matter it. whose wiki it is or how yeah. well maintained that data is. I can't find what you're looking for in that wiki. Just please point me to where that is in the wiki. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there are some good companies out there that, that are doing some, uh, essentially providing search as a product or search as a service. Uh, we use, so Red Hat uses um, Lucidworks. We use their product Fusion. And it's, it, you know, I stand, I stand by it. I think it's, I think it's a great product, but I also want to be responsible and say like, there's a company called Caveo. Uh, they, they do search as a service, Algolia. Uh, they do search as a service. Um, and there are different search applications like uh, Swift type and a few other ones that you can essentially, um, connect into your service or into your product and you can control, you can essentially control the, uh, the first page or like you can, you can either just let the algorithm do what it does, or you can say, everybody is good. Like our top search is X. So I'm going to curate the top 10 results for X. So whoever's looking for this is going to find exactly what we think that they should find. One of the, the frustrations, with, especially with Confluence for me, is that the only way to make it usable is to have somebody be very particular about how and where you arrange the data. So it's kind of like the old bad days of Yahoo as a search engine. There were humans that were organizing the breadcrumbs and kind of categorizing things into this is a movie and this is a book and this is a whatever. Yeah. And if you structure your Confluence data very carefully and you have a tree organ structure and you, you're really good about making sure that people know where to put things and all. You have to have somebody that that's charged with maintaining and being the librarian of your wiki. But none of that is search and none of that is findability. None of that is discoverable. It's all, you have to know what the organizational intent is before you start. And you have to be trained when you're entering content that this is how and where you put it. Right. It's awful. Sorry. It I don't, I don't mean to rag on confidence. All the wikis I've ever used do this. Yeah. It's not special to yeah. them. But. So I just want to say, I just blew my own brain. You're, you're discussing search as a service and the companies that kind of offer that as a service you can embed with your, your the, the wiki that you write. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, and you're naming these companies that sound like, you know, some 28-year-old hit their head against the keyboard and came up with a company name. Right. And I'm thinking, how do you search for these companies? <laughs> And so I go to Google and I type in search as a service and immediately Algolia and Algolia is the first hit. And it actually gives me a search result that's exactly what I was looking for rather than the the noise of search engines that I was expecting. Yeah. That's yeah. wow. A, fr a friend of mine and I many years ago were a post on one of the forum sites and it was you know, give me a Google, sorry, give me a Photoshop version of what Google's going to look like in 10 or 15 years. And the winner, in my opinion, still is the one that has the Google search box. And somebody's typed in, where are my damn keys? And <laughs> the result is a picture of the top of the refrigerator. And it says, on top of the refrigerator, you idiot. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's, that's where we're going. And Google's almost there. Yeah, Orbital was, mind control lasers. I mean, yeah, and like, so this is a really fantastic topic again, um, because with Google home, 
uh, with Android devices. Now, here's a, here's a fun little thing about Android devices, is that if you're using a platform like like a Chrome or Android that um, Google controls, they can see if you've gone to the add cart page, add to cart page, they can see that you've checked out. They see the thank you page. While they can't really see any personalized, personal or encrypted information, one of the one of the working theories that some of us have had is if they see that you have checked out, added to cart, or something like that to to something on an Android or Chrome, that that is a signal that um, impacts your personalized results. And so there's so with Google, like there's the natural results where for some searches, like some like one site is going to be the top most of the time. And the joke has always been after Wikipedia, you, you pick the other nine. But there's a layer of personalization that comes into it where that's based upon your activity, the sites that you visit, and is essentially building a profile about you to give you better personalized results. And so I love the personalized Google results. I know yeah. I'm probably giving my firstborn child to <laughs> Google because of that. But my friends know I'm not big on browsing social media. If I want to kind of mindlessly read the internet and get the feed of things I'm interested in, the Google curated feed of articles is you know, built on my on my search history, built on my browsing history, mm-hmm. and is usually really spot on for things I'm interested in reading about and looking up. You know, just kind of casually at that moment in time. Yeah. In fact, I found a great article about building lockless algorithms around uh, reading and writing from Prometheus historograms uh, uh, <gasps> yesterday. That's so cool. And and Google's just like, here it's in your feed. <laughs> so what you're talking about is is actually part of findability called the information sent trail. And basically what um, findability is about is once you have stored and retrieved information to present it for selection, you want to essentially create what's called an information sent trail. And these, this is done by scanning the environment. This is like, again, this is something I could talk about for, for a long time, but like it's an evolutionary feature of scanning the horizon for predators in a short form. But your eyes, when you're looking at search results, you spend less, generally less than a second per snippet. And you spend more than half the time of that less than a second looking at the title. The rest of the time you look at the, you're looking, you're, you're scanning, you're absorbing the description. And so what Google does, what Google understands is that we are wired to look for essentially key words, not keywords, but key words that trigger a sense of, of uh, intense satisfaction. And so when you start finding these cluster of words that are close to your intent, that creates an information sent trail. And if an information sent trail is discovered, you are more than twice as likely to actually click on a link or follow that information. Uh, they also did some research that showed that once you, once a human finds an information sent trail uh, that's based on their intent, if they click more than four times, at the, like the fifth click, um, and they still haven't found exactly what they're looking for, 
most people enter a false cost or a sunk cost fallacy where I have gone this far down this rabbit hole, so I am going to keep going down. So when we're talking about information science and findability, if you really want somebody to actually find the information that they're looking for, you got to keep it within four clicks away. So this affects use, uh, UI UX. This informs information architecture. Uh, it informs search and search success and things like that. So, well, I definitely want people to find those information centrals. Um, I don't want them to become rabbit holes because once they become rabbit holes, they they they, they feel like they were they've spent too much time looking for something and now they better find something, and ultimately, it ends up with an angry email to me, <laughs> or just a pissed off user who doesn't right right who doesn't, doesn't come back doesn't like it. yeah right. So how do you measure, you're talking about all this thing about like the, the amount of time people spend reading various pieces. How do you measure that? What, what's the, is, is there magic you can share about how that works? Um, yeah, I think the best word to actually describe it is magic. We don't know. And I think, and I'll be super honest, like if it's knowledge-based content, if anyone tells you that they can measure consumability or consumption rates or consumption metrics, it's all BS. Because... Because I went through, the exper- the, I went through the, this whole experiment where we were looking at our, our product documentation. And one of the things I did is I, I went through and I listed, like, these are my assumptions. I assume that a person, a person staying on a page for longer is better. And that was, my, that was one of the assumptions that I, that I put down. So, like, I wanted to optimize for people staying on the page longer. In and reality, like, we just went to lunch. Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Or, in reality, people hit the page, Control-F, find the snippet of code, copy-paste, click to terminal. And they were there for 20 seconds. So, people staying long could be really good. People leaving after 20 seconds, also good. And it started shattering every kind of metric that I was looking at and every assumption I was looking at to to really try to answer... Um, did they find what they're looking for? So I've seen some really clever work done on what's called micro conversions, where I'm sure you've seen as you've looked at documentation, you can't actually like select and copy and paste a snippet of code, but you can click like copy this to keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. That sends a little JavaScript signal says a person interacted with this particular piece of content. And we can assume that because they interacted with this piece of content, that was something that they were looking for. So as irritating as it is that they're blocking your ability to just directly copy and paste in, in good hands and non-evil hands, what they're doing is trying to make sure that the documentation improves. Right. And in aggregate, they start looking at the universe of keywords that brought a, a user to that particular piece of content. And then they segment that universe into, did people actually copy it? Uh, did people copy something from it or did they do, not interact with that page? And hopefully the, 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 the body of keywords that deliver people to that piece of content becomes more accurate. Um, from the e-commerce side, it's super easy. It is so easy. Like it is ridiculously easy because they, they search for a product, they search for a thing, they hit a page, and then there are a series of steps that they can take to actually convert such as adding it to cart, um, putting it on a, on a wish list, 
and there are different weights according to what how you interact with that particular product that that shows um, uh, relevancy and intent they got to the shipping and taxes thing and then bailed out okay well that right. means one thing versus they added to the cart and they never came back well that probably means they were browsing but didn't actually yeah right it might be a pricing issue or something else like that and so when it comes to e-commerce those it creates like this this uh, waterfall of emails where if you put it in the cart and then you put it in the wait list like hey we noticed that you were looking at this <laughs> here's a 10% gift here's a 10% coupon thanks eBay appreciate that right but I, I find I find that working in, in uh, knowledge and discovery content is infinitely more complex and more satisfying mainly because there are just people search people don't search in, in similar ways and um, and like, I, I can say like last week is my seven year anniversary at Red Hat and this field has been the one field that has actually kept my attention for, for the longest and I still enjoy it that's awesome yeah So apart from putting a bug in your ear or whoever's ear at Red Hat to, to build a better wiki search that mere mortals can actually access and get Will to. somebody please build a wiki that doesn't suck? Because um, <laughs> it sounds like, from a lot of what you're saying, that a lot of the, the ways you make site search, as you call it, or the findability pieces better for an organization is putting in a lot of energy into the back end and into the into the knowledge graph and into understanding how your data is structured and how it's arranged and how it relates to itself and that makes it difficult for a small organization that doesn't have a lot of extra resources to just sort of go and do and find so this either to me smells like a ripe, a ripe opportunity for a startup to find a better way to implement and kind of automate some of the grunt work in this yes but i'm not sure how and where they'd sell it um, or somebody like Red Hat to say, hey, we've done a lot of work in this space, and here is at least the bare bones of a structural engine to plug into Confluence and other wikis to make it not awful. And I would yeah. love that. I would just love, 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 love that. And what I, what I can say right now is that the people that I'm working with, like that is one of our goals. Oh, awesome. Is, is, to, is to essentially package and release some of the work that we've done and just give it to the open source community because we know that they're going to make it better. Um, and there are organizations, there are companies out there. Um, for one, I know there's a company, I think it's out of Canada called schema app and they specialize in essentially building the structured data. I mean, like almost, almost magically, like, I don't want to say magically, but like they do a really good job in understanding like the body of content and the topics and the intents and things like that. And then converting it into kind of a structured markup, which can be used to make search results better. Um, but there are, there's, um, I highly recommend uh, getting connected into, um, they're called Haystack Conferences. I don't know okay. if you've heard of them. I have not, but. Um, based off the old, like, finding a needle in a haystack. But there are Haystack Conferences that are in the U.S., um, in the U.K., and there's, there are all over the place, um, obviously not lately, but getting involved into those conferences can get you really deeper into the actual tech. So the Haystack conference is more of a tech focus. 
I'm, I'm not a technician. I'm not a developer. Um, technically, I'm more of a behavioral scientist um, because I work, with, I work with our technology teams to create products that I measure uh, against human behavior. And, but the Haystack conferences are full of actual contributors to search engines, to open source search engines, to um, projects like the like NLP projects or natural language processing projects uh, for the, uh, the learn to rank projects. So that th this is where like the people who are like, deep into the, the algorithmics, deep into the, the, the actual technologies and things like that, that's where they live. And I've been trying to get smarter about those things so that I can not look like an idiot when talking to them. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, SREs, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. The industry is moving fast. Make the right moves with the experience of 42lines.net. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It is the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night. Kids bikes. <laughs>